If you didn't see, the pew kits have arrived, so uh, any children that want to come down and get one of those, they're right down here. And I feel really tall up here in this pulpit, but then I always feel really tall, <laughs> so it's okay. Um, imagine uh, the throne room of uh, King David. You may have seen pictures of this. Uh, you can look it up on the internet. And imagine it's, uh, it's, a, it's about 1,000 B.C., 993, roughly 1,000. And King David, the very first king um, that God anointed in Israel, is uh, striding forward towards his, um, towards his throne. And the palace is overlooking the Kidron Valley, 2,500 feet in the air. And the huge chorus is chanting and singing, uh, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? As David is moving forward towards the throne room. And then he kneels before the high priest, Abiathar. And as he kneels, the chorus continues to sing, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The, whole, the Lord holds them in derision. And then Abiathar speaks on behalf of God. And he says, uh, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then Abiathar takes oil and he pours it on David's head and he says, you are my son. Again, speaking in the voice of God. And as he puts the crown on David's head, he says, today I have begotten you. And David rises from his knees and sits on his throne And the congregation erupts in praise, uh, clapping and shouting, and they say, long live the king. And from that point that that happened in 993 B.C. till the very end of time, um, God had established a king on earth that was God's king. And because it's anointed with oil, the office is called the uh, Messiah, which is literally the, the anointed one. And it is uh, that uh, Messiah that um, leads this underground uh, resistance movement against uh, the evil empire that has taken over the world. That's kind of the big story of the Bible. That um, the context of this psalm is a world gone berserk. And it's kind of like a zombie apocalypse. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, it's caught up in this dystopian world, um, and it's kind of like the Galactic Empire. I think that, um, I don't know, George Lucas must have been getting this story from somewhere deep in the human uh, subconscious, some kind of archetype. But the idea of, you know, Emperor Palpatine, hostile takeover of the galaxy that was originally good, uh, that is such a compelling story because... I believe that that story is something we somehow know. That we know something's gone wrong with this world and that we're in the grips of a foreign empire that is somewhat like the way that Europe was when the Nazis occupied. And so within that empire, um, we believe that God has started this rebel alliance, which is called the kingdom. And it is not ruled um, by just any old king, it's ruled by the one that God has anointed, the Messiah. And that, that child who is coming from David, um, the one child who will rule uh, for all time is uh, the capital T, capital M Messiah. Um, 
the Lord's anointed, who we believe is Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. And so I want to look at the, the two things um, that we see in this psalm. This is, this is a political psalm, no doubt about it. It's very different from the first psalm, which was more individual. This is, this is corporate. This really sets the stage for the, the whole layout of Scripture, um, of these two warring factions, the empire that has been entrenched in the world, the nations raging, and the peoples, and the kings of the earth setting themselves together against the Lord and his anointed, and then God's resistance movement of the, of the kingdom. So first of all, the empire, uh, verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's like a worldwide conspiracy. The psalmist uh, sees through uh, all the different kinds of politics into this basic political disposition that is uh, basically an attempt to overthrow God, raging and plotting. And rage is literally to growl or to murmur or to mutter. It's like the sound when a teacher, I used to be a high school teacher, when, when the teacher would assign a really uh, unpopular paper or something that was really hard or the test scores were really low, that sound would come up from, arise from the classroom of kind of groaning and muttering and murmuring. And that's the sound of rebellion that that is going on in verse 1 here. The nations are raging, muttering, murmuring, plotting. And it says that all the people rage and plot, not just some. And so this kind of eliminates that, uh, that fiction, that a naive, I would say, uh, idea that a lot of Americans have that there are these kind of innocent tribes out there that, are, that have not been tarnished by Western uh, imperialism or colonialism, that... They're living in tranquility on some kind of remote island. This says, no, that, that all, all peoples, all rulers of any kind, all governments have this opposition, this basic opposition to the creator. It says all the kings have set themselves against God in verse 2. And so that's, that's not, there's no neutral, uh, spiritually neutral uh, country that even Sweden with all its progressive uh, policies and the perfect educational system, jobs for everyone, universal health care. Still, the psalmist would say, even the Swedish are plotting and raging uh, against God. And that's a very strong claim. I'm very aware of that. Um, But from beginning to end, cover to cover, the Bible just continues to present that vision. That is the biblical imagination, if you will. It's the way that the scriptures see the world. All these different empires through time Opposing the Creator, you know whether uh, the Tower of Babel. You see it there. You see it uh, certainly with the Egyptian Empire that has enslaved the Israelites. You see it later on with uh, Assyria and then Babylon and then Persia. You see it with the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire in the New Testament, and the Book of Revelation continues to see empires coming. America, part of the same thing. But um, whether it's a democracy or a theocracy or an oligarchy. Uh, a republic, a dictatorship. It doesn't really matter the form of government. The idea is that all of them are saying, let us burst God's bonds apart and let us cast off their cords from us. They're all in revolt against God. That's the basic disposition, that God is an oppressor. Um, As the parable in Matthew 25, 24 uh, This person in the parable says that God is a hard man, harvesting things he didn't plant and gathering crops he didn't grow. That is the way that 
people see God as a hard man, a kind of a Thomas Gradgrind, if you know Charles Dickens, that God is, uh, is trying to hold people down and turn the screws, keep them under his thumb. As Karl Marx said, uh, let the ruling class tremble at the revolution. We have nothing to lose but our chains. We have a world to win. Workmen of the world unite. Now that, he was not applying that to God. But you could take that same famous line and apply it to humans and their disposition towards God. Rebels of the world unite. And it's this sense of a moral high ground too. You know, the closed fist raised in the air. Uh, The empire always kind of takes this stance as a valiant, heroic rebel like uh, Che Guevara or James Dean, you know, the original rebel with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Um, The great Russian anarchist uh, Mikhail Bakunin said this. He said, Satan is the eternal rebel, the first free thinker and the emancipator of the world. He makes man ashamed of his bestial ignorance and obedience. He emancipates man. Satan stamps upon man's brow the seal of liberty and humanity in urging man to disobey and eat the fruit of knowledge. That's that same idea. Um, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords from us. You know, th- that we think that God is holding us down and that he doesn't want us to thrive and he wants you in subjection. So much uh, rhetoric is out there um, about that. Um, you see that if, if you read... Um, any of the new atheists, uh, you see a lot of that language being used. And it's not just the new atheists. I think all of us feel at times that God is holding us down, don't we? That, that God is uh, crossing all of our fair designs. He's thwarting our schemes. That to be really brave and free, uh, you need to overthrow uh, God's oppression and be rid of him because he's a hard man. I typed in Google, I typed, uh, God is an oppressor. And see, just wanted to see what would come up when I typed that in. God is an oppressor. And the, the first thing that showed up is a website called Toxic Drum. Toxicdrum.com. And it's, it was a really interesting insight. It was a little scary how convincing it was to me. It felt plausible to me. Which just shows how much of this is inside of us. So this is what the Toxic Drum says. When things go right, people are encouraged to attribute this to God. But when things go wrong, it's your fault. This seems to be the archetypal relationship of an oppressor to a victim. The oppressor creates an environment where the victim suffers, and only by complying with the oppressor will the pain be reduced. So the victim sees their oppressor as their savior. And that's the way that toxic drum thinks that we should feel about God. That when anything goes well, it's God. When anything goes wrong, it's me. And that he's got us in this situation where it's almost like the Stockholm Syndrome where our, our oppressor, our, our captor, um, is the one that we bow to. That's the way that this tries to portray God. And I think the fact that that is somehow um, enticing just shows what's so deeply wrong in the human heart that that humans think that their creator is oppressing them. Uh, and so we rage and we murmur and we mutter against God. And this might sound extreme to you. I mean, you might be thinking, but I, you know, I know all these people who are agnostic and atheist and 
They don't rage at all, and they don't, they don't clench their fist and raise it in the air. I mean, you probably know people like that. They don't actually seem like they don't care about God at all. Like, they're totally indifferent to God. But I would say that um, that may be true in, like, a polite conversation about a theoretical God. You know, they might be kind of calm and uh, not really get worked up at all about it. But if you start to, you know, press uh, anyone about this, this Yahweh, the God of the Jews, who is the Lord of hosts. And if you say something like, you know, you need to serve the Lord with fear, verse 11. If you say something like that to someone, you should be serving the Lord with fear. Then you're going to start to see the murmuring and the growling and the muttering. And it might take the form of silence of angry silence, but that's still a kind of a rage. And I think the reason that we rage against serving the Lord, our Creator, is because we just want this independence so badly. We don't want to serve anyone. And we demand absolute control. Especially Americans. Like, the great theme of most Americans is autonomy over my money, uh, my sex, my body, my property, everything. It's mine. Stay out. Don't tell me what to do with my stuff. Keep your hands off my body. Keep your hands off my property. Keep your hands off everything that is mine. My time. And if God were ever so bold as to pretend like he has any claim at all over us, we would call it a human rights violation. We'd call in the ACLU. We'd start a campaign against God for infringing upon our basic rights. This is why Paul says in Romans 8-7 that the natural human mindset, our natural mindset is to be hostile towards God. That's the word he uses, hostility. And here's the reason he says that. The the natural mind is hostile to God because it will not submit to God's law. Indeed, he says, it cannot do so. It is so bound up with this insubordinate, um, angry rage that the human natural mindset cannot submit to God. And the reason it cannot submit to God's law is because we have our own law, and that own law is I am my own. I belong to myself. Uh, The great poet Jessica Simpson, she puts it this way. She says, I belong to me. My heart is my possession. I will be my own reflection. I've never listened to that song. Okay, just, I found that. I I couldn't believe that Jessica Simpson came up when I typed in I am my own. And, uh, That should make clear to you that this is, I'm not just trashing atheists or agnostics. Jessica Simpson was actually a good friend of mine's um, person. It it was uh, his youth pastor's daughter. So my friend and Jessica were both in the same youth group. And her dad is a pastor, a youth pastor. And so the reason I say that is because uh, she grew up in the church. And she would still think, you know, that uh, to say, I belong to me or my heart is my own possession, I'll be my own reflection, that that's okay. That just shows how deep it is. The church doesn't always really provide a haven or a refuge for this idea of human autonomy and absolute independence. And so I'm just saying that the empire is in all of us. It's in all of us. And just being a Christian doesn't uh, allow you to just completely escape it. It's still going to be something you have to fight against all the time. That we are all insubordinate and churlish to quote the uh, substitute teacher in Key and Peele's skit, insubordinate and churlish. That's what he calls the students, if you've seen that skit. But the good news is there is this alternative underground movement, this avant-garde movement, 
uh, like the French resistance movement. It's so cool to be a part of the French resistance and to be a part of the kingdom of God. You are the brave ones who are actually fighting against the uh, rage addiction. You know, the church is kind of like an AA meeting or should be like an AA meeting of people who have finally admitted, yes, we, we, we are set against God. Yes, we do, um, we do murmur and we do mutter. And um, that is a problem. The kingdom of God is, you can think of it as a bunch of people in a church basement or sitting around in a circle in metal folding chairs, you know, smoking cigarettes and saying, I admit that I am powerless over my raging and my life has become unmanageable. And, and that, is, um, that is what we need more than anything, I think, is to just to, to give up that resistance and to submit and to not be part of the nations that are saying, let us cast off their cords from us. Let us break their bonds apart. To rid yourself of that mindset is, is the only thing, that's the only way you can be free. The irony is you, that that mindset makes you think that is freedom. But in fact, the only freedom you could ever have is to, to, to finally admit you're like that and want it to be gone. The rage for independence. And so verse 12 is this great hope that, that we could get on a knee, bow our head, and kiss the king's signet ring. That's what it means when it says, kiss the son lest he be angry. It's that image of the son holds out his signet ring of pardon. You get down on one knee and you kiss the son's ring to say, I submit to you. And that's, that's the kingdom, point two. Kiss the son lest he be angry. That should probably be translated, pay homage to the king with absolute sincerity. With no irony and total integrity, submit yourself to the true king, the anointed, the Messiah. And to even do that physically, you know, try that tonight. You know, go home and get down on one knee and bow your head and pay homage to God. Your king. That's hard to do. That's hard for me to do as a Christian. When I go to a Catholic church or an Anglican church, I don't really like to get down on my knees. Uh, it doesn't feel right because I am proud to be an American, or at least I know I'm free. And to get down on your knees doesn't feel the same way. It feels like um, I actually saw at a conference Richard Foster. I don't know if you ever heard of Richard Foster. He's um, he's like this Quaker. Uh, spiritual guy who really began the, move, the spiritual disciplines movement that Dallas Willard picked up on. But I was at a conference, a uh, Renovare conference, and Richard Foster was the main speaker. And he, he got down on his knees on stage and bowed down, kind of like a Muslim would do, and it just made me really uncomfortable. But that's the right posture. I mean, that's one thing I love about Islam is that just they are so much submitted to God. Um, they reject the Messiah. Uh, they reject Jesus Christ, so that's a terrible mistake. But one thing I do admire about them, uh, they are not ashamed to get down on their knees and say, I submit to God. They pay homage to God. When I was an atheist, like the most embarrassing thing I could have imagined was an altar call. I had never really been to a place that did one. I had never actually seen one live, but I had in my mind what it was like maybe from movies or something like that, but the idea of an altar call, of coming down at the end of a church service and just as I am is playing on an organ, on a bad organ in the background and getting down on my knees in front of a, a congregation and a pastor, like a country pastor with a thick country accent, 
Leading me in the sinner's prayer was about as embarrassing and awful a thing as I could imagine. And that would have felt like being dashed in pieces, which is exactly what verse 9 talks about. That the, the, the anointed king will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And on the one hand, that was my ultimate fear, but it's also what I needed so badly. It's this weird combination of joy and terror. Um, the idea of being smashed by this great king. Uh, I love the juxtaposition of verse 11, rejoice with trembling. That, that beautiful paradox of the same time with God you're rejoicing and you're also trembling. Um, they both go together. It's not like the more you rejoice, the less you tremble, or the more you tremble, the less you rejoice. They, they go together. They feed one another. I visited Ireland a couple of years ago, and we went to the Cliffs of Moher. And if you've ever seen the Princess Bride, it's the Cliffs of Insanity. 700 feet, just completely straight down. And you feel like you're just walking through a field with a bunch of cows, and then all of a sudden you get to this edge, this lip of a cliff, and you look down, and uh, it just takes your breath away. You immediately back up. And I didn't even want to get on my feet anywhere near it. So I kind of crawled. I got down on my knees and just kind of crawled to the edge and grabbed some clumps of grass and barely peered over the edge. And it's that combination of this thrill um, and then also terror. I kind of wanted it and I didn't want it. And that's what is offered in the kingdom. Is that uh, rejoicing with trembling is the opposite of the muttering and the murmuring and the raging. That's, That's the freedom. That's the liberation of being in the presence of God. This thrilling fear. Psalm 46.1. This is from the Message Translation. Standing fearless at the cliff edge of doom. Courageous in a sea storm and earthquake. Before the rush and the roar of oceans. That's amazingly similar to the cliffs of Moher. But that's what it's like to worship God. And if you've never experienced that, then there's so much more for you to know about the worship of God. That there really can be uh, kind of a, a terror and a joy at the same time. I was talking to a friend this week who really liked her boss, which I found to be unusual. And I asked her why she liked her boss, and she said, she doesn't suffer fools gladly. Which is a great expression. It actually comes from the Apostle Paul. I looked it up. She doesn't suffer fools gladly. And I said, um, what do you mean exactly by that? And she said, well, it means that um, she doesn't take any you-know-what. And, um, and then I said, do you think God is like that, that he doesn't suffer fools gladly? And she's like, absolutely. I do, I do not want to worship a deity that is, like, permissive and weak. I want to worship a God who does not suffer fools gladly. In spite of all the children's books that are out there, like Uncle Jesus, not like these, these are great, okay, the Jesus Story Bible is fantastic, but there are children's Bibles out there, there's one called Uncle Jesus, and um, it's just a terrible title, and so often he's smiling, just almost entirely smiling, and it's kind of like the big white teeth, like Joel Osteen, like a look like that, and that is, that is the farthest thing from verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. My favorite uh, commentary on the Psalms is by Derek Kidner, and I would really encourage you to get that as we're going through the Psalms. And uh, very short, but really rich. This is a very typical sentence from Derek Kidner. Um, 
He's commenting on verse 5. He will speak to, speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Kidner says that, that may sound like the touchiness of a despot. But Christ's wrath, like his compassion, blazed up at wrongs which left his contemporaries quite unruffled. In other words, he would get upset about things that no one around him got upset about. And it was a good thing about him. Um, Woe to you, you brood of vipers. Matthew 23, 33. That was about hypocrites. Got very upset about hypocrites. Jesus entered the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Matthew 21, 12. He was angry when he did that. He wasn't smiling when he overturned the tables of the money changers. And then my favorite, Mark 3, 5. When Jesus saw they didn't care about the man with a withered hand, he encountered a man with a withered hand. And he healed him on the Sabbath. And everybody was upset with him for healing the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And he looked at them, and it says he looked at them with anger in his heart. He was grieved. He was grieved for their hardness of heart. And that, um, that is the king. That's the Messiah. He does get angry. He's not soft. He's not permissive. He's grim and he is mighty. And that is the, that is the thing we need to break all of our murmuring and our muttering. Is, is a God like that. His response to all the empires range is very simple. I love this. To all the empires plotting and raging and conspiring together, setting themselves against God, God simply says this, I have set my king on Zion. I've got one word for you, empire. Jesus. That's all I need to say. I had a friend where whenever we had a debate, he would always just say, Milner, I've got one word for you. And he'd say something. So like, we, we were debating whether the Warriors would be the Cavs. Milner, I've got one word for you. LeBron James. And then we were debating whether the SEC or the ACC is better in football, which he always was a huge SEC fan. We always had this debate. Milner, I've got one word for you. Alabama. And I lo- I've always loved that expression, I've got one word for you. And that's what God says To all the empires, I've got one word for you. Jesus. That that one word opposes all of the the anger and the rebellion of all humans through all time. And he will not suffer fools gladly. And ultimately the raging will not continue forever. And we should take delight in that. We should not be embarrassed about God being like that. But, I should end by saying, to any rebel, even who's muttering and murmuring, if any rebel will kiss the Son, not only will he not punish them, but he will bless them. It's incredible that this, this psalm of all psalms would end with the word blessed. Because you would expect this kind of militaristic psalm, like this martial psalm, to end with something uh, terrible that he will do uh, to anyone that opposes him. And it does have that in there, but then it ends with blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, there's no requirement of penance, there's no punishment, there's no guilt trip that anyone that comes to him, he just immediately blesses them. And the word blessed there means begotten, loved, adopted, exalted, given freedom. Look at verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, that, is a, that is a phrase 
primarily intended for King David on that day when he ascended the throne and all David's offspring. But in many ways, the language of that overflows its banks, and it's got to be bigger than that. Uh, that could not simply apply to David. That, that could only apply ultimately to, to great David's greater son, which is Jesus, the, the true son of God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. That, that, is, um, that has got to be about Jesus. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So that, that doesn't really fully become fulfilled until Jesus is crowned king. Um, which happens on his cross, where the crown is put on his head. And if we're united to Jesus, um, then we also, we also have that same thing said to us. Um, you are my son, you are my daughter, today I have begotten you. Simply because we're in Christ. Uh, not only do we not perish in the way, verse 12, but we're reborn. Today I have begotten you. Begotten, not made. You are now a, a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve. If you are in the sun. If you kiss the sun. Um, like Lucy the Valiant, if you know Narnia. Susan the Gentle. Peter the Magnificent. Edmund the Just. Just think of that scene that I started with of David approaching the throne. Uh, that would also be true of you if you take refuge in Christ. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so, you know, Karl Marx and Mikhail Bakunin were entirely wrong. Uh, God is not oppressing you. He is actually exalting you. He is, um, he is anointing you and he's crowning you and he is enthroning you. And there are angels and archangels singing beyond what happened to David. Uh, to anyone who takes refuge in the sun, God exalts him to the skies. And, and the only reason he, he does that and he can do that is because he himself lost his throne. He, he, was, he was oppressed. He was dethroned. And so he doesn't break us. He is broken. And he doesn't dash us to pieces. He was dashed to pieces. And that, that is the, the ultimate glory of the king, of the anointed, which is what we celebrate in this meal, um, this great substitution that uh, the anointed king somehow was crucified. This shocking combination of ideas that the ruler of the world would, would rule precisely through this kind of humility. And uh, it is such a stunning reality that I always have to say before we partake of the meal that if you...